Hi everybody, I'm Raj and this is Blood Cancer Talks. This is a podcast dedicated exclusively to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular topic and we focus on the latest advances in the biology and clinical management. Today we are excited to discuss the management of smoldering multiple myeloma. As our audience will know, smoldering multiple myeloma has been a very controversial topic lately, especially early intervention in patients with high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma. We have an expert with us, Dr. Mori Gertz, who is a professor of hematology at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so, Dr. Gertz, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your clinical and research focus is? So, I've uh, been at Mayo Clinic as a hematologist for 40 years, and I had the privilege of being trained by Robert Kyle for the first 10 years of my career. And so um, I've had a lot of exposure and over the years have become interested in all the monoclonal gemopathies. Myeloma is the big one, but of course, amyloid, poems, Waldenstrom's, cold agglutinin disease, all of those I think are areas that are just really exciting now. Sounds good. All right, so we'll jump right in. So we'll start with a case and we will keep coming back to the case as we go over the discussion. So uh, Harry is a 66-year-old male who was referred to our clinic uh, for monoclonal gammopathy that was identified by his primary care doctor when a routine blood work showed a protein gap. He did not have necessarily any symptoms. It was mainly because of protein gap that was noted by his primary care doctor that led to the downstream testing. Uh, he had obviously no anemia, hypercalcemia, no renal insufficiency, was completely asymptomatic and on monoclonal gammopathy workup he had a m protein of 2.5 grams per deciliter of igg lambda so an m spike of more than two with a serum free light chain ratio or, or lambda to kappa ratio of 18 1 8 and then a bone marrow biopsy was done prior to the patient seeing us um, and the bone marrow biopsy showed 20 to 30 percent plasma cells and Fish revealed translocation of 11-14 and gain 1Q, so three copies, not four copies, uh, of, of three copies of 1Q. So before we jump into the management of the case, Dr. Gertz, for our audience, can you give us a 10,000-foot view on what is smoldering myeloma and why was it categorized historically by Dr. Kyle as a separate entity from MGUS? So Kyle had already well-defined MGUS between the mid-60s and the mid-70s, and had a very large referral practice of patients with monoclonal gammopathies. And he never treated asymptomatic patients. He always observed them. But he did see patients with M-spikes of greater than three grams per deciliter. And he felt uncomfortable sending them back to referring physicians, calling them MGUS, because he thought it was more. He recognized that the size of the M-spike is a continuum of risk, that one gram is more than a half gram, two grams more than one gram. And so he was uncomfortable by just sending them back as a big MGUS, which of course it is. So what he did is he called it smoldering multiple myeloma to alert the referring hematologist oncologist that this wasn't simply an MGUS. And he was really trying to imply that follow-up and monitoring and surveillance had to occur more frequently, leading obviously to the publication of his 1980 New England Journal article where the term was first used in print. Sounds good. So in the seminal studies from Mayo Clinic, can you tell us what was the risk of progression of smoldering myeloma to symptomatic crab myeloma? Right. So again, if you lump all of the patients together, 
what you get is that for the first five years, it's 10% per year. For the next five years, it's 3% per year. And then after 10 years, it becomes exactly like MGUS at 1% per year. So there's really three slopes to the curve, 50% by five years, 65% by 10 years. But even so, if you look at the original data, at 20 years, patients with either over 10% plasma cells or a three-gram spike, 20% were still under observation without intervention. One question I have here that, you know, this uh, data is obviously from, you know, like the 1980s or even before. In the current day smoldering myeloma patients, you know, where we are excluding the patients who have slim, we are doing advanced imaging, so we are catching them early. If you were to do a similar study right now, do you think the risk of progression in the first 10 years would be lower than 10% per year? So you're asking a really, really important question because this criteria applies to the one study of smoldering myeloma that demonstrated a survival benefit. And I think you know that there clearly had to be patients who had active myeloma, but a negative, simple radiographic bone survey, very insensitive. And back in the days when we didn't have PET scanning, whole body MRI, we'd have smoldering patients that we'd recommend observation. Four months later, they'd call and say, my back hurts so bad, I can't get out of bed, I can't flex, I can't rotate, and they had an L3 compression fracture. Well, they didn't develop myeloma in the four months of observation. They had myeloma, but we didn't have the sensitive tools to identify it. So if we applied that data set, including light chains and high-level imaging, I'm quite certain that we would eliminate the early patients with myeloma and that risk of 10% per year for five years would be lower, but we can't, I can't quantify how much lower. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. Now, going back to the case, so just for the audience, just to refresh uh, the memory, um, our patient was asymptomatic, had no crap features, had an M spike of 2.5 and free light chain ratio of 18 and a bone marrow plasma cell of 20 to 30%, so more than 20%. And the only high risk feature was gain 1Q. So uh, when you see a patient like this in your clinic, you know, at first encounter, can you walk us through your thought process as to how you approach this patient? What risk stratification systems do you apply? And just your entire thought process on how you, how you manage these patients. So clearly we have to be talking outside of a clinical trial because if the patient's eligible for a clinical trial, we simply can't advance the science and the practice. But for patients where a clinical trial doesn't appear to be a realistic option, given a negative PET scan, I certainly, in my head, am not going to offer treatment, but I will discuss with them what the risk of evolution, because what we're trying to balance here, on one side, you'd say there are going to be people that we observe and they're going to suffer irreversible complications early on because we didn't intervene. But on the other side, I think that we're treating a lot of patients unnecessarily. And if the treatment was benign, I wouldn't mind. But the treatments that we're applying to these patients can result in permanent irreversible painful neuropathy, higher risk of infections, life-threatening venous thromboembolism, and all of the problems associated to psycho dynamics of dexamethasone. 
And so I don't like treating completely asymptomatic patients. Believe it or not, I just now had a patient who was on a smoldering myeloma trial who got admitted with PJP pneumonia because the sulfur prophylaxis was omitted for a completely asymptomatic patient. That was really a bad outcome. But in terms of trying to, how do I counsel the patient? I actually use the IMWG smoldering myeloma model. And the reason is this, it's weighted. When you use the 22020 model, it's simple, but 20% plasma cells, two gram spike, light chain ratio of 20 are weighted equally, one point each. But the truth is they're not. And in the IMWG model, it incorporates the fish. It's a 20 point scale. You get various points for based on how many plasma cells. So in IMWG 2020, they split the light chain ratio 0 to 10, 10 to 25, 25 to 40, and greater than 40, and you get points. M spike, 0 to 1.5, 1.5 to 3, greater than 3. Bone marrow plasma cells, 0 to 15, blah, blah. And then the fish abnormalities. A patient like this who had a 2.5 gram spike would get three points in the system, two points for the free light chain ratio, which would be five, and the fish abnormalities would be two is seven, would be low intermediate risk, and the uh, would be a two-year progression of approximately 20%. It's not very high. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I love the IMWG model I, because it provides a granularity and it also gives an individualized or personalized risk uh, estimate. And that's, you know, is what is unique about the IMWG model. As you know, there well, was... I, Go ahead. Sorry. I just agree with you. I mean, you can't wait someone who has a 4-gram spike and a 2.5-gram spike the same. You know they're not. And someone who has 50% plasma cells is different from someone who has 25% plasma cells. And the IMWG model, which also incorporates fish, allows us to make those estimates. But even so, the IMWG model needs to be validated by other groups. Yeah, absolutely. And we have uh, recently, we had another model, the Pangea model by Dr. Irene Cobrial's group from the PROMISE study that was published. And that also provides a personalized risk prediction. Uh, however, that doesn't include fish. It only includes uh, the monoclonal proteins and the hemoglobin. And um, I have been actually playing around with both these models, the IMWG and the Pangea model in my patients in the clinic. And uh, the Pangea model seems like the risk of progression, it turns out to be slightly lower. But I think both needs to be you know, further valued validated in a large and diverse patient population. Well, you bring up an important point in that the different models don't have concordance. They tell you that different people are high risk. And so if you use the Spanish model, the people you'd be treating with smoldering myeloma are not the same group as you would with the 22020 model. I mean, in, if you look at the ISTOP myeloma study recently published by the Icelandics, the 22020 identified 8% high risk, the Spanish 17% high risk, and out of a total of 87 patients that were a high risk, the intermediate or high risk, the concordance was 52%. So we're not even talking about the same patients when we compare studies of smoldering myeloma. 
Yeah, absolutely. So for our patient, if we go back and apply the risk score, so our patient had a bone marrow plasma cell of more than 20% and M-spike of more than two. So by the Mayo 2018 model, it would be high risk. So it would be uh, having two out of three high risk abnormalities. So it would be considered high risk with a two year risk of 47%. And then when we apply the IMWG model, as you said, I think one thing that we skipped was the bone marrow. So you, you were right, it was seven, but we add the bone marrow, then it becomes nine. So the a two-year risk will be, I think, approximately in the ballpark of 50% with the IMWG model in this patient. And with the Pangea model, it turned out to be 15%, 1-5. Yeah. So yeah. it was much, much lower. Well, you should find it disturbing. That lack of concordance when you're making decisions on patients that have lifelong impact. And I think one of the real issues we need to be thinking about is, do I need to make my decision? on the first visit. When I'm seeing that patient for the first time, do I need to make a decision and intervene? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, other than, as you said that, you know, with the PET CT, so you would be doing, you know, a, a, some kind of imaging. So when you first see them, what advanced imaging do you get at baseline if it was already not performed by the referring physician? And then how often do you repeat it, you know, in, in at subsequent visits? Right. So I use whole body PET CT much, much more for smoldering myeloma than I do for active myeloma. There are patients with active myeloma, active. Hemoglobin's nine or serum creatinine is over two. And I know I'm going to treat them and it won't matter what the imaging shows. Often we'll actually use the much less expensive whole body CT skeletal survey, just to identify the compression fractures and the lytic lesions. But that's not the same for smoldering myeloma. When you tell a patient with a three gram spike or 20% plasma cells in the bone marrow that you're going to observe them, you better be certain that their bones are completely negative. And I think it's absolutely required to either get a PET CT or a whole body MRI which I will also tell you was lacking in the Mayo 2008 model. It got incorporated in the 2018, but when it was first described in 2008, a high proportion didn't get high-end imaging. But you cannot tell a patient you are withholding treatment without a PET scan. You've absolutely got to have that. Now, in terms of the monitoring and imaging, that's different. Because then, once I, if I embark on a monitoring phase, I'm really, really closely monitoring the M-spike in the serum and the serum-free light chain, both involved level and ratio. And the truth of the matter is, if that level is stable over time and the patient remains asymptomatic, I'm pretty stingy with the high-end imaging. It's very, very different if three months later, the involved-free light chain rose 10 milligrams per deciliter, or the M-spike went up 0.2 or 0.3 grams per deciliter. These patients are clearly evolving and will develop multiple myeloma. You don't want to miss that. Those patients get imaged a lot more frequently. So the kinetics of the light chain and the M-spike drive what I do in terms of imaging. Sounds good. So it's more, it's from what it seems like, it's more the kinetics of the monoclonal protein rather than whether they are in 20 to 20 high risk or standard risk that basically drives your 
follow-up strategy because if, if the if a patient is low risk to begin with but the m protein or light chain is rising that you would consider a higher risk patient right and, and probably oh, i'd do be very imaging. concerned you know that the size of the m spike has no prognostic value at all in myeloma and so the absolute value isn't but if i see that the thing is rising i know it's trouble and it may be a year or it may be three years but, you know, patients say, do you, I think maybe I won't ever need treatment? Well, if I see the rising M spike, for me, it's I wouldn't count on it. I think that with this rise, you have a growing clone that hasn't caused symptoms. You will need therapy. I'm just trying to delay it while you're continuing to feel good. But your monitoring has to be frequent and imaging has to be part of it. Sounds good. So now let's dive into the big question on early therapeutic intervention in patients with high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma, I mean high-risk by one of these uh, risk stratification models. So as you know, there have been several trials trying to, trying to ask this question from a long time actually, uh, whether we should treat high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma early to delay progression to symptomatic myeloma and hopefully also to prolong survival. So for the purpose of our discussion today, we will primarily focus on two randomized control trials in this space. One is the Quiridex trial by the Spanish group and the other is the ECOG E3A06 trial. So just to give a big uh, picture overview of the Quiridex trial for our audience, so it was a phase three randomized control trial that included patients who were high risk smoldering multiple myeloma by the Spanish or the Pethema model. And uh, they basically, patients were randomized into Revlimid dexamethasone for two years versus observation. And the primary endpoint of this trial was time to progression to symptomatic multiple myeloma. So overall, um, on a face value, it was a positive study. At a median follow-up of about six years, the median time to progression was not reached in the Revlimid dexamethasone arm and was around two years or 23 months in the observation arm. Uh, although overall survival was not a primary endpoint of this study and the study was not powered to show that, but it did um, nevertheless show an OS benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.43, the confidence interval was fairly wide given the low numbers. So Dr. Gertz, on face value, it seems like a positive trial that should change practice. Can you walk us through your thoughts on the, on the design and the results of this trial? Absolutely. So a couple of things we need to look at. First of all, let's talk about what's high risk in Spanish. There are really two criteria. One is atypical plasma cells by flow, and the other is suppression of uninvolved immunoglobulins. Those were the criteria. And one of the problems is that the atypical plasma cells by flow is not a very widely available technique. When the Icelandic group with iStop tried to identify in their patients, there are actually only 87 patients that actually had the flow because it's not easy to get. The thing that tipped me off is if you look at the progression-free survival at three years, it was 80% with Lendex and 30% on placebo. And I thought, oh my God, that's an amazing spread, 80 versus 30%. So you have to go to the supplement of the article, New England Journal, just to understand what are the criteria. You can't just read the abstract and look at the curve. So this trial is now over 15 years old. And a couple things, these, like the Kyle smoldering group, the radiographic evaluation did not include PET-CT or whole body MRI. So I have to assume that a fixed number, probably in both groups, actually had active myeloma. Number two, this was initiated when 
myeloma-defining events had not been defined. So patients with a free light chain ratio over 100, eligible for randomization. Bone marrow over 60%, eligible to randomization to placebo. In addition, when you look at the monitoring of these patients, the patient in a placebo group or in the treatment group, in order to go off study, it wasn't enough to have a rising M protein. So if you saw a patient on placebo go from two grams to three grams to four grams, that patient stayed on trial, on observation, because M protein progression was not a criteria. In addition, patients were eligible to be randomized if they had smoldered up to five years before they were randomized. And trust me, the risk of a brand new patient that you see with high-risk smoldering myeloma is not the same as a smoldering patient who's been smoldering four years and hasn't developed active myeloma and comes for randomization. The data, the 22020 data of Mayo is based on first visit, but you can't say the risk is 10% for the first five years if they've already been under observation for four years. You can't say you have a 50% chance. Second, you need to keep in mind that when you treat patients, second primary malignancies become an issue. When we start talking about intervention in asymptomatic patients that include LEN and melphalan, Spanish study, second primary malignancy, 6% versus 2%. But when you look at second primary malignancies in the determination trial, which is transplant, no transplant with indefinite LEN maintenance, second primary malignancies, 10.7%. So starting treatment is not benign. And finally, it's Spain. So you have a Lendex versus placebo. When a person on placebo progresses, what do you do? Well, if I were doing the trial, if Lendex was one arm and placebo was the other arm at progression, I'd give Lendex. But you can't get Lendex for newly diagnosed myeloma in Spain, it's almost certain that those patients received bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone. In other words, it was placebo-controlled, but no crossover at progression to the other arm. They just went off study and got bortezomib, melpredin. We don't even know how that compares with some of the other studies. So it's really tricky to generalize a trial that accrued 15 years ago and say, this is today's practice. Yeah, I think you made a great point. So looking at the post-protocol therapy, uh, I was looking at, you know, uh, from like current treatment perspective that now we use a PI inhibit combination like VRD, for example, and uh, less than one third of patients in the observation arm ever got a PI inhibit combination, you know, after progression in that trial. So yeah, you can't get an image. I'm telling you, they got VMP. Yeah. So that's kind of, um, you know, also makes... Uh, interpretation of the overall survival signal very, very problematic. Right. Uh, I mean, I've heard 100 presentations about the survival advantage worldwide, but no one talks about the disadvantages. They just show the survival curve and it was phase three and placebo controlled, and then it's done. The book is closed and victory has been declared. All right. So we'll go to the next randomized trial now. That was the ECOG E3AO6 trial. So again, for the audience, just a big picture summary. So this was a randomized control trial comparing rev limit until progression 
versus observation. And um, here it was rev limit until progression. However, the median duration of rev limit turned out to be roughly in the ballpark of two years. And it's also important to note that this trial was designed as a trial for all comers, not only for a trial for high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma. And the eligibility was based on the Mayo 2008 criteria. And uh, the trial also allowed patients who had a high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma diagnosed as early as five years prior to trial enrollment. The primary endpoint was PFS, and again, it was a positive trial on face value with a three-year PFS of 91% in the RevLimit arm and 66% in the observation arm. So you see uh, the PFS at two or three years here is in the observation or the control arm is much better than that in the Spanish arm, which kind of tells a little bit of diagnostic shift over the years. Uh, so far, there has been no overall survival difference. So, uh, Dr. Gertz, can you walk us through your thoughts on the design and the results of this trial um, as to what are your key takeaways? Sure. So, first of all, let's talk about 2020. Uh, and Raj, I'm sure this has happened to you in your practice. The patient had 60% plasma cells in the bone marrow, was completely asymptomatic, got started four cycles of VRD, sent to me for a transplant. So I'm there for the transplant. I have the outside bone marrow reviewed. Our pathologist said 40% plasma cells. And you know that when you use percentage plasma cells as a criteria, you know how focal this disease can be. And I've had patients sent to me with bone marrow 70%, and the hemoglobin is 14 and a half grams. And I'm thinking, really, they've got 70% and a normal hemoglobin? So you have to remember that there's sampling error with plasma cells. Secondly, the free light chain ratio, the ratio, not the involved, but the ratio is highly dependent on the denominator. And the denominator is the uninvolved free light chains. So let's say we're talking in units of milligrams per deciliter. Well, if you change the denominator, the uninvolved from one milligram per deciliter to 0.5 milligram per deciliter, your ratio doubles, even though the involved light chain is unchanged. So I've seen patients referred in with a light chain ratio of 25. I repeat it, it's 17. So we need to be just keep in mind about it. Not, the not the M spot that's reproducible, but the light chain ratio and the bone marrow plasma cells is not an absolute like a yardstick. But anyway, let's look at E3A06. First of all, if you look at the supplemental material, 3.3% of enrolled patients had over 60% plasma cells in the bone marrow, 8% had a free light chain ratio over 100. A PET or MRI was not mandatory to get into the study. So again, no high in imaging. And although it achieved statistical significance, what's really, really important is that the placebo group, the untreated group, had a risk of myeloma of 24% at two years. I assume it would be less if we did PET MRI. But the question is for a patient. If I said you have a 24% chance of developing myeloma two years, 76% chance you'll still be asymptomatic. Do you want to start treatment with lenalidomide-based therapy? And I think, I don't know the answer, but I think it's worth asking every patient. And when you look at true high-risk patients in the trial, that also was figure four in supplement, that study had 29 patients that were high-risk 
And I mean, I don't know what else to say when the high-risk patients were 14 in the Lenarm, 15. So what I can tell you is that if you take standard risk and high risk, you get a better progression-free survival, but only a quarter of the patients have developed myeloma. And most of my patients, when I tell them the risk is one in four of myeloma, off trial, they're not going to participate. Yeah, no, that's a, you bring up some very good points because the high risk is a subgroup analysis. So it's hard to trust, you know, with that small numbers. One thing that I also saw in, I think they're in their main table one, that there were about 45% of patients had abnormality in MRI, but it's not clear what kind of abnormalities. I was just wondering if we were to do, let's say, a whole body diffusion-weighted MRI in those patients, it's possible that some of them may have had active focal lesions with a low ADC, for example. Would you agree it's, with that? It's possible, but you know, I bet most of those, what you see on the MRI is because of the cellular infiltration, you lose bone marrow fat as the red marrow expands. And what you see on MRI uh, is a loss, if you will, of fat increase in water density and that marrow expansion. And that's not a myeloma defining criteria. The reality is we don't know how many of those patients by MRI you'd look at and say, oh, this really is multiple myeloma. It's tough. We just don't have the data to comment. Yeah, thanks for the great summary of the two trials. Um, another thing I would ask, you know, if we were to design a trial now, you know, of high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma with, uh, let's say, observation as the control arm, in the observation arm, do you think we should specify like serial imaging or rising, you know, M-spike or something like that? The patients should come off in that case uh, if we were to design like in 2023 with observation as the control arm? Absolutely, you have to do that. You know, I don't actually believe when we say a positive PET scan is a myeloma-defining event, it's it, it's not. It's myeloma. It's myeloma using a technique that is superior to the outmoded radiographic bone survey. So if you're observing a patient that you know is at high risk for developing myeloma, how can you in good conscience not image those patients so they don't suffer a skeletal event that might have been preventable if it was picked up by imaging. And so, yes, I do think, even though it's not happening, you do need a non-treatment arm. And yes, imaging is absolutely essential because it's anemia, bone disease, renal insufficiency, and you have to detect bone disease early and pet and or whole body MRI are your best approaches. Sounds good. So, uh, I mean, you already kind of um, hinted on the answer, but based on these two trials, it seems like you would not change your practice in patients who are high risk by 20 to 20 criteria, or, or would you? When I see a patient, I do talk to them about the two clinical trials that are available, one of which is extremely intensive, includes carfilzomib induction and transplant. The other is a less intensive doublet, Daralen type of a treatment. And I think that we need to be committed to allowing these patients to participate in clinical trials and not deny them the opportunity because the trial is not perfect because no trial is perfect. But if the patient says, yeah, I'm not going to participate in a research trial, then I'm going to put them, once I have the negative PET scan, I'm going to then put them on a careful monitoring schedule where the keys are going to be, is the hemoglobin declining, the creatinine rising, the involved light chain, not the ratio, the involved light chain rising, and what's the M-spike doing? 
Sounds good. So now we will switch gears and basically go on to the two uh, single arm trials of fixed duration intensive therapy that were presented at ASH 2022, the Gem Caesar trial and the Ascent trial. So for the audience, the Gem Caesar trial uh, included patients by the Pethema high-risk criteria, similar to the earlier Spanish trial, where patients were treated with KRD induction followed by autologous transplant, KRD consolidation, and then revelment maintenance. So a total of two years. Whereas in the ASCENT trial that included patients who were high risk by the 20 to 20 criteria or had a certain score above um, in the IMWG smoldering multiple myeloma criteria, and they were given DARA KRD, so no transplant, DARA KRD for two years. Um, so Dr. Gertz, can you talk about the, your thoughts on the top line results of these trials that were recently presented? Right, so let's talk about what really is out there right now for smoldering multiple myeloma? And there's you can classify them into three categories. Low intensity, that would include the trials that were Lendex, Len alone, Dara alone, Elotuzumab, Isotuximab, and Siltuximab. Intermediate were ERD, Elotuzumab, Lendex, Carfilzomib, Lendex, and Ixazomib, Lendex, all of those. And then the high intensity is GEM Cesar, which is KRD transplant. It's a problem because with a single arm trial, I think the best you're going to be able to do, the best you can do is get an MRD negativity rate. But right now, we don't have as yet evidence that increasing intensity of intervention will achieve an improved overall survival. You can only look at the GEM Cesar as a toxicity justification to justify a phase three trial. And when you're looking at KRD transplant in completely uh, asymptomatic patients, well, then we need to look pretty hard at how many patients had cardiac complications from carfilzomib, sepsis, disseminated zoster. I mean, there are other phases, you know, ibertamide index uh, is being looked at in a phase two. Uh, for smoldering myeloma. And as I said, Dara, Bortezomib, Lendex, with, and these are, N, that's the PRISM trial, MRD negativity at two years. And so that's about what you can get. You can get a progression-free survival in a patient who wasn't sick to begin with, but more importantly, MRD neg- sustained MRD negativity at two years. That would give you at least some insight as whether it's really possible to cure an asymptomatic patient if you treat them before symptoms develop. And it's appropriate to continue to enroll patients in these trials. But there's no way I take someone and give them KRD transplant maintenance outside of a clinical trial. So in this intensive clinical trials, you know, as we have seen, there were some some deaths from toxicity, including deaths from infection. There were some second primary malignancies. Given it's an asymptomatic patient population, do you think there should always be a control arm to rule out any harm signal or death signal from the treatment? Well, it better be in the consent form, that's for sure. I mean, the fact that asymptomatic patients were feeling good, and you know how these patients are. They went to the doctor for their annual Medicare exam, total protein was elevated, did an SPEP, two-gram spike, referred to the hematologist, and they said, gee, I didn't know I was sick. And then if a patient like that dies six months into it, when maybe their risk of developing active myeloma was only 50% two years from now, or 40% two years from now, or they developed a serious second cancer, we need to be thinking about that. 
Others are thinking about all the morbidities that might develop during monitoring. Maybe they'll develop cast nephropathy or a serious bone event during monitoring. That's legitimate. But it's just as legitimate to say, well, what about treatment-related complications that we may have been able to avoid two years, three years, five years? And so you have to take that into account. I mean, I don't know how I'd feel if I had a completely asymptomatic patient who participated in research and then died. And as I told you, I had a, a PJP patient just on smoldering trial, just discharged from the hospital. You know, he had a bronch in order to make the diagnosis. It wasn't the picnic, I bet. Yeah, that's uh, I, that's why I always think that for asymptomatic patients, the bar should be really, really high before any any intervention. So, um, yeah, thanks for the great points. And then, uh, you know, one thing is that when we saw the results at ASH this year, for Gem Caesar trial, for example, the sustained MRD negativity rate at four years on an intention-to-treat basis was, you know, approximately about 28%. So it wasn't huge. And in the ASCEN trial, the stringent CR rate was approximately 43%. So, you know, overall, we are not seeing the numbers that are higher than what we would achieve with these regimens in newly diagnosed myeloma, for example. Definitely not high. Of higher. course. The flip side is how many of them would have been symptomatic four years later. And right now, it's a real problem. Right now, I count 17 trials underway for smoldering, six different inclusion-exclusion criteria, two phase three, one placebo-controlled, and the only one with an overall survival endpoint is the deter DARA-RD versus RD, ECOG. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's the Wild West out there. And I, again, I'm very happy to enroll my patients, but if you're not getting in a trial, I'm not treating you. Sounds good. So now, you know, as we are uh, talking about clinical trials anyway, so, you know, it's a good segue to talk about clinical trial endpoints in smoldering multiple myeloma. So do you think in the current day and age, it's, it's fair to have like time to progression or PFS as an endpoint for smoldering trial? Or do you think overall survival should remain the gold standard for, um, for all smoldering trial, especially for regulatory approval? It's really, really hard. That's a very difficult question. One of the problems is that all, there is not been in a number of trials a terrific correlation between progression-free and overall survival. But if you demand overall survival as your endpoint, it's going to be 10 years before this trial can be submitted to the FDA. And you have to think about, well, what if I have really an active drug, a truly good drug, the new teclistamab, let's say, but I need overall survival as my endpoint, how many people, because of delayed approval by the FDA, will be denied access to a very active agent because we demanded overall survival? And so I think with myeloma and people living eight years median, we have to make compromises that are less than perfect and less ideal than overall survival. And so certainly for relapse trials, progression-free survival, I think, is a important endpoint. And for newly diagnosed and smoldering trials, I think that MRD negativity by flow of 10 to the minus 6 is a very important endpoint. I mean, look, you want to talk ideally overall survival, sure. But realistically, practically, I don't think drug companies will develop new drugs if the time to approval is a decade, which is it will be for overall survival. And I think it's unfair to patients. I think there are good drugs that won't get out to the community 
because we dug our heels in and insisted on overall survival. So it's the gold standard. I get that. But I just don't think it's realistic. And I think we then have to adjust ourselves to allow progression-free and MRD negativity rates as imperfect surrogates. And you know what? Look, so we had Melflufan approved, withdrawn. And we had um, Belantamab approved and withdrawn. I think it's better to do that, to get it out there, let people get it, and then find out it's not so great and pull it than it is to not approve it in the first place. Everybody doesn't get it. And then later on, and then you probably get the same results that it would be withdrawn. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, regarding smoldering myeloma, the only concern I have, you know, with the MRD, not so much with the, not, not so much, I would say with the PFS, but with MRD is, let's say if you have an intensive treatment strategy that is causing, uh, you know, treatment related morbidity and mortality, but have a good MRD rate, I mean, that can end up, you know, sometimes harming the patient or decreasing the quality of life or, you know, because those were asymptomatic patients. Uh, for newly diagnosed myeloma, I still understand, but that is the concern that I have with smoldering myeloma with, with MRD as an endpoint. Your concern is completely legitimate. You do raise the important point about how the quality of life tools between the different groups, untreated, low intensity, high intensity, become very important. I want to know what their lives are like with and without treatment. But in a smoldering, remember, five years it, well, high risk. It's 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 probably 30% to two years, a little higher than that at five years. If you work through your statistics and ask how many patients and how long will it take for a readout, well, it, it won't matter to me because I'll be either retired or dead uh, because it's just going to take so long. Unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, thanks for your um, insight. So now we'll switch gears and go into slim myeloma. I'll briefly talk about one of the slim criteria. So just for the audience, in 2014, the diagnostic criteria for multiple myeloma were revised to include three myeloma-defining events. One was the bone marrow plasma cell of more than 60%. Uh, one was MRI focal lesion, more than one. And uh, the third was uh, involved by uninvolved serum-free light chain ratio of more than 100, as long as the absolute involved serum-free light chain ratio was uh, was uh, more than 100 milligrams per deciliter. So, uh, Dr. Gertz, so if a patient comes to your clinic with a serum-free light chain ratio of, let's say, 210, but no other myeloma-defining events, like the bone marrow plasma cell is less than 60%, and a whole body MRI is negative, uh, how do you approach them currently? Do you start them so on treatment? You, you, I need all the, all the data. It's not just the ratio of 210. I need to know, is it the involved light chain 150, uninvolved 0.6, or is the involved light chain 50 and the uninvolved 0.2? Those are very different in terms of what the ratio is. Also, I want to know with that ratio, was the bone marrow plasma cells 15 or 50%? It's not one value. You have to integrate these variables. And so certainly I will tell you this, even when the ratio of 100 was adopted, Shaji Kumar just published last year that, well, it isn't really a ratio of 100. You have to have light chain proteinuria above a specific threshold. So even he admits that that doesn't meet criteria. And like everyone else, if you do this long enough, I actually have been following a patient nine years with a ratio of 500. 
It's crazy, but he's 500 with 5 to 9% plasma cells and multiple imaging studies negative. So on light chain alone, I'm circumspect. I'm not saying I'm not treating, but I want to know what the other parameters. Is the hemoglobin 11.8 or is it 13.5? Is the bone marrow 10% or 40%? All of those have to be integrated in, but I would be very cautious. I've been warning people who are listening that if you just reflexively knee-jerk and say, your ratio's 100, you need immediate treatment. I'm telling you, you need to sit on your hands and take a pause and maybe repeat it in one month. Nothing's going to fall apart. Yeah, uh, definitely. And then I, I quickly wanted to touch upon that Mayo paper by Dr. Kumar that you just mentioned. So in that paper, uh, they looked at patients who in whom light chain ratio of more than 100 was the only myelomodifying event. And then they looked at among those patients, uh, patients who had proteinuria versus those who did not have proteinuria. And even in those who had proteinuria, although they had a significantly higher risk of progression, but the risk of progression was only 36% at two to three years. So that was still fairly low. So, I mean, um, with that number, do you think that if light chain, even if they have proteinuria, if the light chain ratio is more than 100, would you, would we, would, should we just monitor it? I, I get your point that we have to uh, well, look at I the think entire... so. I mean, look, that paper actually repudiates the IMWG designation of light chain ratio of 100 as a myeloma-defining event. It clearly is a myeloma-defining event in the minority of patients. And that Kumar paper should have gotten a much higher priority journal because it's so important in showing that the risk really isn't that high in patients that have comprehensive evaluation with high-end imaging. Yeah, and in these patients, you know, when you are watching them, for example, these slim patients, if you are not really treating them right away, uh, how often would you monitor with imaging? Like every six months, every 12 months? So with imaging, again, it would depend on the involved light chain level, and it would depend on whether the light chain level was changing. Probably 12 months in a true high-risk patient is not enough, but we need to be convinced that they're legitimately high-risk patients, and, and then I would probably do it every six. You know how reimbursement gets involved here too, you know. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I think we yeah we covered everything. So this was a great discussion. Thank you very much for your insight. And uh, I'm sure our audience will love it too. This has been a very hot topic lately. And we, we really appreciate your time. And, oh, Raj, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you.